Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I have on my desk the November 7th issue of The New Yorker, and in the November 7th issue of The New Yorker, there is a longish piece called Class Warfare. The subtitle says, School Boards Are Being Attacked by Partisan Saboteurs. So obviously this is like a very politically loaded article. And it focuses on a group called Moms for Liberty. And Moms for Liberty is like a militia caliber PTA. They sort of entrench themselves with the school board and they try to tinker with the curriculum. In particular, they're very interested in making sure that the, that the curriculum is not teaching kids anything that is subversive or toxic or dangerous. And so, like right off the bat, even though as noble as those intentions might be, you can see sort of the irony because they're called Moms for Liberty and the, literally, their primary focus and function is censorship. So I want to read you this one paragraph. We're going to break it in halves and then I'm just going to talk about it. In May 2021, as the district finished its first academic year with the with wit and wisdom, which is like the umbrella term for the curriculum that this particular school district is using to be sort of inclusive and to communicate things about, you know, racial difference, gender difference. Okay, so as the district finished its first academic year with wit and wisdom, women wearing Moms for Liberty t-shirts began appearing at school board meetings. They brought large placards that contained images and text from 31 books that they didn't want students to read. In public comments and in written complaints, the women claimed that wit and wisdom was teaching children to hate themselves, one another, their families, and America. And I don't know, I'm kind of torn because I'm like, if you legitimately believe that, if you legitimately believe that your this local school has been infiltrated by like socialist propaganda or whatever and it's trying to make your children feel bad yeah you sort of try to argue it out so but here here is their argument they claim that a picture book about seahorses which touches on everything from their ability to change color to the independent movement of their eyes threatened to quote normalize that males can get pregnant end quote by explaining that male seahorses can get pregnant the Moms for Liberty suspected a covert endorsement of, quote, gender fluidity, end quote. They said that Greco-Roman myths endorse nudity and cannibalism because Venus emerges naked from the sea and Tantalus cooks his son. So, like, again, it's, okay, you're a good mother if you're concerned for your child's well-being and you don't want them to be exposed prematurely to shit that you think is, you know, toxic for their mental well-being. Maybe it's too violent, maybe it's vulgar, but as someone who reads a lot of books, personally, I, like, I enjoy them, and as someone who writes books, I, uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm intrigued by this conviction. The notion, oh, okay, I forget the name of the author, but some guy said, um, you know, 90% of science fiction is terrible, but then again, 90% of everything is terrible. So as someone who reads a lot of books, I can tell you, like, yeah, there are some books that can change your life, totally change your way of thinking, but it is absolutely true that 90% of books are bad. They're just not good. They're written for money or they're written out of some cockamamie conviction. And I kind of maintain that the idea that there is any single book in the world that is so eloquent, so charming, so manipulative that it can turn your child into a nude 
gender fluid cannibal that is the conviction of somebody who has not read many books it is like a special thing if you can even find a book that makes you cry or chuckle it's like i've never i've never read a book cannibalism i've never read a book that made me like look at a person and go Yum. And it feels mean to be like, oh, obviously these people have never, they don't read books or have never read books, or if they are reading books, they are only reading books at, of, of like an elementary school level, and they are reading it from like a moralizing, judgmental point of view. But that feels a little mean because I know, obviously, this is like a fiercely conservative group. Everyone in this group is on the right-hand side of the political spectrum. And it feels kind of mean to be like, well, the right-hand side of the political spectrum appears not to be that well-versed in books and how they work and what they do. And that feels like a weird, like a very political thing to say. And for a long time, I've been like very staunchly of the, of the position that, that I should not be political on my podcast because what the fuck do I know about anything? But there was a period where I was thinking, I was reading more about politics, I was reading more about the presidency, and I was like, you know what? On the podcast, I'm going to start talking about uh, politics. And part of the way that I was reasoning myself toward that decision is I was honestly like, you know what? It seems that is I was saying like this book this show is all about books and like the New Yorker I have a lot of Republicans in my family and I'm sort of casually acquainted with some people who are more to, on the right-hand side of the spectrum than myself and I not many of them are readers which isn't to impugn their their moral character it's not to say that they're less intelligent it's just that one of the tenets of a conservative mind frame is that you go out and you work and you work hard you earn your money honestly and then you sort of spend your life doing whatever it is you want to do. Whereas on the left, the idea is more like, no, you need to constantly be improving yourself. We need to all be working together, trying to understand one another, trying to accommodate one another. And so, you know, left-wing talk radio and left-wing media tends to be a little more eloquent, tends to be a little more idea-y than right-wing conservative commentary. But then I was so surprised, like, I, I've fallen under the spell of this dude on the literary scene. He's in his 80s now. You probably know the name. His name is Otto Penzler. Otto Penzler is not really a writer. He owns a store called, I think, Mystery Books, and he runs a publishing company called Mystery Press, and he's the editor of a series of books. It comes out every year. It's called, like, The Year's Best Mystery and Suspense, and it's exactly that. It's a collection of the best, you know, mystery and thriller crime stories that have been published in that year. But he's also edited a number of volumes of crime fiction, mystery fiction, and for the past six months, as we're going to get into with the next few episodes, I have been exhaustively researching the 1920s, uh, in particular organized crime of the 1920s, in particular organized crime surrounding the manufacture and distribution of alcohol during the 1920s. I'm going to say it right now because I have recorded it several times and I have written it several times without ever sort of fessing up to what I'm working on. It is a book called Cuba Tooth, and it is, it is the sequel to Cuba Fruit. My agent has submitted Cuba Fruit to 12 publishing houses, and um, in October I finished the first draft of Cuba Tooth. I am mired in this kind of research, and so Otto Penzler became quite a presence in my life. I was reading a lot of those anthologies, reading a lot of pulpy crime stories from the 1920s and 30s and 40s. But Otto Penzler is the author of one book. I don't even know the fucking title, because you can't find it anywhere, because I think it's only published by his imprint, and you can't get an e-copy. I think it's a little fascistic that he feels that way, that you shouldn't be able to get a digital copy of his book, but I understand, because the book is about his lifelong, avid collection 
of books up until recently because he had to sell his collection for he just figured he's getting old and he may as well collect on it he had 40,000 books and almost all of them were rare editions of early 20th century late 19th century crime fiction I listened to a podcast it's hosted by a guy named Gil Roth and it's called the virtual memories podcast and this dude is it's not even his full-time job but he, he produces so much material he is an avid reader he's a very sharp and incisive reader and he travels the country going to do face-to-face -face interviews with authors that he admires Gil Roth recently did an interview with Otto Penzler about that book in the course of that interview I learned that Otto Penzler is like neoconservative he's fiercely conservative so conservative that like when a, a profanity a word of profanity slips out of the host's mouth on two occasions Otto Penzler like threatens to kick him out of the house and it's kinda jokey but you can hear there's weight behind his voice like he's really bothered by profanity and because I live in such like a vulgar place I don't know Vo the word vulgar has a lot of implications I live in a profane place but profane has implications too I live in a place that I guess is loose in the tongue I live in a place that's loose in the tongue Profanity is, as Lewis Black says of his own use of the word fuck, it's more a comma than a word. I just forget that there are a lot of people for whom profanity, like typical four-letter word profanity, is abrasive to their ears, like it prompts them to wince. And I realized it was such a, like a dormant prejudice of mine, or, or one that I never really think about in a critical way, that I w the reason I was shocked to learn that Otto Penzler is so fiercely conservative is because he is also fiercely fiercely literary and bookish and cerebral and so while obviously I'm looking at this group moms for liberty and kind of looking down on their practice because they're looking to sort of police the dissemination of books even though they are conspicuously ill-read I realize that their convictions are repulsive to me because they're built on prejudice and then I just have to look inwards and realize by their own prompting that I have prejudices of my own. And on that happy note, thanks for listening. Happy to be back. And I'll talk to you next time. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more of it, you can subscribe to Thousand Movie Project's Patreon page on uh, patreon.com forward slash Thousand Movie Project. And if you subscribe to the Patreon, you will get access to uh, some secret project that I'm not supposed to be disseminating. We'll talk about it piecemeal over the next few episodes.